Professor Massimo Piliucci has a PhD in evolutionary biology from the University of Connecticut and a PhD in philosophy from the University of Tennessee. He is the KD Irani Professor of Philosophy at the City College of New York. His research interests include the philosophy of science, the nature of pseudoscience, and practical philosophies like stoicism and new skepticism. He is the author or editor of 16 books, including the best-selling How to Be a Stoic, Using Ancient Philosophy to Live a Modern Life. Other titles include Nonsense on Stilts, How to Tell Science from Bunk, and the most recent one, The Quest for Character, What the Story of Socrates and Alcibiades Teaches Us About Our Search for Good Leaders, that I thoroughly recommend to everyone. Professor Piliucci, welcome to Eurotrash. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. The very first sentence of your new book uh, is a question that reads, can we make ourselves into better human beings? I'm 37 years old (laughs) and have been called a stubborn goat more than a few times because I'm already so set in my ways. Uh, So I'm skeptical of the prospect myself. But since I have you here, can I still become a better person or is it way too late for me? It's not too late, but it's going to take some work. <laughs> so the evidence from, uh, from modern science, from modern cognitive science, shows that the ancient Greco-Romans pretty much got the general idea right. The best time to work on being a good person is actually when you're very young between the age of seven or eight, which is when when children begin to be able to think in abstract terms, up until your late teenager or early 20s. Now, the reason for this, as we know today, is because the human brain keeps growing until one is in, in his or her early 20s, and then it kind of stops. It kind of settles down. Now, however, that said... Bad the human news. Brain, bad news. Yeah, I know. Bad news, right? That's the bad news. The good news is the the human brain is still fairly flexible. Obviously, we're capable of learning new things uh, after the 20s. So you can still improve. You can still become a better person. But it takes work and you have to want to do it. Think about it this way. Uh, A good analogy is with learning a new language or with learning how to play a musical instrument. We all know that both languages and music are much better or, or, uh, learned when you're young, when you're very young, because, you're, again, the, your uh, brain is very flexible. So you learn much more easily, you become much more proficient, etc. But that doesn't mean that, as an adult, you can't pick up a, you know, alto sax and start playing, or, or it doesn't mean that you can't start learning a new language. It just means that it will be slower going, and a little bit more difficult to do, but it can be done. Okay, so I have to readjust my ambitions in that Correct. sense. Correct. <laughs> I can become better, but like a little bit better. Exactly, a little bit better. <laughs> okay. Like you explain it yourself in the book, these days virtue is a bit of an old-fashioned word associated with like ancient philosophers, right? Um, like something out of a Shakespearean dialogue or maybe Lord of the Rings, something that's closer to sure. me. Um, but what would you say comes closest to virtue in today's context? Well, the, the interesting thing is that when we talk about virtue today, yeah, you're right, it is certainly an old-fashioned word. And not only that, but most people tend to associate the Christian concept 
of virtue with the word. And so they start thinking about things like purity and chastity and you know, something like that. But the Greco-Romans did not have that kind of thing in mind. What they had in mind was what modern scientists refer to as behavioral attitudes. So a virtue is a character trait, and therefore it is a behavioral attitude or behavioral tendency. Let's say, for instance, you say, oh, my friend is a generous person. What you mean is that other things being equal, your friend is prone, more prone than average to devote time, resources, energy, money, whatever, to help other people. And if you say, so, and that's a virtue. Generosity is a virtue. If, on the other hand, you say, you know, my, my friend is a little bit stingy, you mean the opposite. You mean that he has the vice of not spending enough time or resources or, or, uh, or whatever, helping other people. So, really, the virtues are character traits, and character traits are behavioral dispositions. Even more generally, the Greco-Romans actually used the word arete, which means excellence. So being virtuous means being excellent at being a human, a human being. Now, the word arete can actually be applied in, uh, in the Greco-Roman fashion to anything that has a function, not just human beings, but let's say objects. Like a few days ago, my wife and I went out and got a bread knife, a new bread knife, because we needed, we needed a, a new knife. And we got an arete bread knife, meaning an excellent bread knife. Now, what is excellence for a bread knife? It means that the knife cuts the bread nicely, smoothly, without effort, that sort of stuff, right? So similarly, a human being is arete, is excellent, when he or she does what human beings are supposed to do, that is, what the function of human beings is, in a very good way. Now, that, of course, raises the question, well, what is the function of a human being? The Greco-Romans, without knowing anything about evolution, thought that nature shaped us as a species on the basis of two fundamental characteristics. One, we are capable of reason in a much more sophisticated fashion than any other animal. That's how we make our living. Other animals fly or swim or have big muscles or big fangs or something like that. We think. We, We solve our problems by using our large brains. And second, we are highly social animals. There are other social animals, of course, you know, other social primates, social insects, etc., etc. But human societies are far more complicated, far more integrated uh, than anything else on the planet. So, from that observation, the Greco-Romans derived that the human, the function of a human being, is to think correctly and to act pro-socially, to act in a cooperative fashion, and therefore, to be virtuous means to think correctly, and to act pro-socially. Why were the Stoics so focused on the quest of refining one's moral excellence in the first place? Because everything else depends on it, essentially. (laughs) If by morality you mean... So we we have to actually step back for a second here and talk a little bit about the the very word morality or ethics. I'm going to use them interchangeably, uh, actually to mean essentially the same thing. Now, today, if you ask most moral philosophers, and I think most people in general, and you say, you know, what do you think ethics is about or what do you think morality is about? The answer is going to be something on the lines of, oh, it's the study of right and wrong. It's, it's the area of philosophy that tells me whether an action is, that I'm contemplating is right or wrong. That's a very narrow view, however, of ethics. 
The word ethics itself comes again from the Greek, from ethos, and it was translated in Latin by Cicero as moralis, from which we get our morality, which is why I'm saying that ethics and morality are the same thing. But in the uh, ancient world, ethics or morality meant having a good character and living well with other people. So it was a much broader conception of ethics than we have today. Of course, in order to live well with other people, you also have to have an idea of what is right and wrong, you know, of, of whether a particular action is right and wrong. But you have to have much more than that. You have to have an idea of how to interact with other people in all sorts of settings. You have to have an idea of values, what is good and what is not good, uh, what your priorities sh should be, what kind of a life you want to live, that sort of stuff. All of that falls under ethics in the, in the ancient sense. So ethics is really broadly speaking, the study of how to live a good life. That answers the question of why the Stoic study was so important. Well, because what else is there? If, if we're defining ethics as the study of how to get a good life, then of course you want to study. You want to you know, involve yourself in that kind of uh, exercise. You go to great pains in the book, which I think is awesome personally, to explain that the philosophical way of life um, you know, used to be in something else in the Greek or Roman world, like how to live a good life, right? These days, however, being a philosopher means uh, you have a PhD in philosophy and are teaching at university, uh, usually, probably, which makes philosophy kind of, you know, a little bit elitist. And um, for most people, at least, and which is also why I was a tiny bit scared to read your book, to be honest. <laughs> I thought it's going to be like really uh, way over my head. But um, I guess I want to ask, how do we reclaim that old meaning of the word where this pursuit becomes available to everybody again? Yeah, I think we're in the process of, of doing that. Now, let me step back again for a second and say there's nothing wrong with philosophy as understood as an academic pursuit of, you know, of, you know in a highly specialized manners. I mean, my day job is exactly what you described. I have a PhD in philosophy and I work, uh, I teach in a university and my specialty is philosophy of science. So I spend my time at work thinking about the nature of science, how science works or doesn't work and that sort of stuff. And it's a highly specialized kind of pursuit. But it's no different from any other academic discipline, right? When I, before coming to philosophy, I was an evolutionary biologist and I was doing the same exact thing. Uh, you, you get a PhD in biology and you start studying and spending a lot of time studying very, very narrow, very, very specific kinds of questions. There's nothing wrong with that so long as you understand that that's not philosophy in the sense in which we're talking about it with this conversation. That is philosophy as a way of life. The two aspects, the two meanings of philosophy have really coexisted since the pre-Socratic philosophers. So they've been around for like 2,500 years. There were philosophers in ancient Greece that did what I do. They spent most of their time thinking about the nature of reality in a very abstract, very abstruse way and really couldn't care less about communicating with uh, people outside the field because that wasn't the point. Now, just like a modern scientist or a modern historian or a modern economist doesn't really concern himself usually with communicating with the public because that's, that's what they're doing. That's the nature of their job. But at the same time, there were people like Socrates or people like Plato or people like Aristotle who thought, wait a minute, there is another sense of what it means to do philosophy. After all, philosophy means literally love of wisdom. And wisdom is a fundamental, is the fu arguably the fundamental virtue, 
which allows for good life. So there is a, a sense in which being a philosopher is not a specialized academic pursuit, but something that anybody could do. And in fact, arguably, that everybody should do. And that is why I write books like The Quest for Character, which, by the way, in Europe is published as How to Be Good for some reason. I don't, I don't know why. Uh, and that's why we're having these kind of conversations. So the, the notion is to bring back philosophy as a way of life to a broader public. In fact, I would go so far as saying that the notion that philosophy is only an academic uh, sort of career or an academic um, you know, pursuit is actually very anomalous. And it's only happened in the, during the 20th century, really, 19, late 19, early 20th century, when the academy itself became specialized. That's true not just for philosophy, but also for other fields. Again, science is the same thing. So it's really an anomaly of Western philosophy over the last century or two. But other than that, in most other places in the world, and for most of Western history itself, philosophy had both meanings. And you could be a philosopher in the sort of general sense of, I want to live a good life, and I want to use my large brain to try to figure out what that good life is, is about. The second sentence, aka question of the book, reads, and can we get the leaders of our society to care about the general welfare so that humanity may prosper, not just economically, but also spiritually? And then you go on to very honestly examine historical cases of where uh, famous philosophers try to instill some virtue and uh, some moral excellence in various rulers, uh, you go from Socrates and his friend Alcibiades, who later turned out to be a little bit of a traitor to Athens. <laughs> and then we have Plato and the tyrants of Syracuse, who almost ended up killing him twice, I believe. Yep. Um, to the Roman Stoic uh, philosopher Seneca, who advised the, um, how should we call it, not so well Emperor Nero. Um, <laughs> since these yes. wisest men failed and failed in a quite spectacular fashion um what chance do we mere mortals have in trying to sway our leaders to be a little bit more ethical yeah that's a great question so there are two chapters that are kind of central to the book as you mentioned i go to a series of case studies from ancient greece and rome and the reason by the way I focused on examples from Greece and Rome as opposed to, say, modern contemporary examples is because if, if I were to start talking about current politicians, you know, start naming names of politicians in Europe or the UK or the United States, then you would probably lose half of your audience because uh, as soon as I start saying something negative or critical of this person or that person or the other person, then, you know, partisans of that person will say, oh, this is, this is all uh, a lot of crap and I'm not going to listen to it. Instead, I am betting that not many people feel very strongly about Nero or Alexander the Great or Dionysus of Syracuse. And therefore, if we can be a little bit more honest in, the, in our analysis of what these people were doing. Now, those two chapters uh, that are in the middle part of the book uh, do two different things, two different but related things. In one case, I look at case studies of philosophers trying to teach statesmen. So those are the cases, most of the cases you mentioned fall into that category. So uh, Seneca trying to teach Nero in yeah. Rome, uh, Plato trying to teach Dionysus I and Dionysus II of Syracuse, 
those kind of things. Aristotle trying to teach Alexander the Great and actually succeeding a little bit better than, than the other. The, other the first half was kind of good, wasn't it? Right, exactly. Life. It, was, yeah. it was not a disaster. It was not a Nero <laughs> situation. <laughs> and then the next chapter deals with examples where the statesmen themselves uh, themselves have actually gotten into philosophy and, and, and trained themselves into philosophy as a way of life, of course, not as an academic discipline. So those are cases like Marcus Aurelius, Cato the Younger, who was a Stoic senator in Republican Rome, Cicero, uh, you know, several, uh, Julian the Apostate, who was the last yeah. pagan Roman emperor, etc. And the pattern that emerges from those two sets of case studies is pretty clear. The chances that a philosopher will succeed in teaching somebody who is already in a, advanced and to the point of being a statesman are not very good. Pretty much all, all of, almost all of those are failures. The exception, the partial exception is Aristotle and Alexander, but that's because Aristotle got Alexander very young. Uh, you know, he, was, he, teach, he taught Alexander when he was 16 or 17. And as we said before, that, that, that is still a, a moment in uh, human development when people are still flexible and kind of open. It's true that, that um, Nero also was about 17 when Seneca started teaching him, but Nero probably had some serious uh, mental issues. I mean, he, he was really deranged. <laughs> it was not, nobody would have succeeded with Nero. There were some serious mental issues there. Now, the second group, on the other hand, tend to be much more successful as politicians. Now, successful, of course, I have to qualify here. Successful means they were able to engage in politics in a way that was honest, characterized by integrity, and trying to do the right thing. That doesn't mean that they actually succeeded in what they were trying to do. For instance, both Cato the Younger and Cicero lived in the last few years of the Roman Republic. They were allies. They tried to save the Republic from Julius Caesar and then eventually later from Octavian, the first Roman emperor, and they failed. The out, so the outcome didn't really go their way. But, it's, but any historian will tell you they did try, and they tried honestly. They tried their, their best. And frankly, that's all we can ask of a statesman or a politician, to do their best in order to achieve a certain goal. Whether he or she actually achieves the goal, that depends on a lot of other circumstances. Probably nobody could have saved the Roman Republic at the, at the time. The situation was such in structural terms, in terms of you know, social, political, and economic dynamics, that it would have been impossible for anybody to succeed anyway. Marcus Aurelius succeeded in both cases, in both, in both senses of the word. He was a good emperor, meaning that he tried to do his best to manage the empire and, and uh, uh, ensure that the people thrived, and he actually succeeded. That, that was one of, he was the last of the so-called five Roman emperors, and the Roman Empire was doing pretty well and he, uh, under, under him, and in fact, he was able to manage a series of crises in a, in a pretty good way by, by any standards. So part of the message, therefore, that emerges from the book is don't try to change a politician who is already set in his ways uh, or her ways because that's just not going to succeed. But do try to get to people either early on, so train young people to become statesmen, or try to reach out to people who are already doing their job, but they are themselves open to improvement. They are themselves open to uh, suggestions and, and, to, and to guidance. So, and that goes for 
statesman as much as it goes for everybody else. I mean, we were talking about what are you, earlier on, what, what are your chances of becoming a better human being, right? And I said, well... Not very good. They're okay, but but you know it, it would have been it would have been better to start earlier. And uh, yeah. but because you want to improve, because it is actually your intention to become better, then you probably will succeed. You will you will you'll make progress if you actually uh, you know pay attention and, and and put your effort in it. But if somebody comes from the outside and you have no intention whatsoever of responding to the to, to the suggestion that the person makes, then of course it's not going to work. Yeah, well, honestly, I, I I believe, to be honest, I did start this podcast to, to try to gain a valuable insight or two along the way, you know, so perhaps there still is a sliver of hope, um, yeah. silver lining and all. Uh, so I appreciate <laughs> your kind words. Anyway, uh, back to your the, to the point that you were just making. I've read an article in The Atlantic that referenced a study that found that an unusually high number of CEOs and politicians kind of possess slightly psychopathic traits. Um, I believe the number was around 12%, which is 12 times higher than in the general population. Apparently, these positions that require require a lot of cold calculation and uh, end up rewarding these types of pathological personalities um, who end up being very successful and kind of championed by society at large. Do you think that we have a problem already here with what type of people are attracted to positions of power yes we do uh in fact that study <laughs> <Okay>. is kind of interesting <laughs> that's kind of that, that study that you mentioned is interesting and i i've written about that as well that's right the two areas where you find a, a much larger percentage of sociopathic or psych- psychopathic profiles are politics and high finance and great news frankly i doubt yeah i, I doubt that anybody's going to be really surprised by <laughs> by that right it's like yeah i would have expected that just just pay attention to who's in those if kind they of are stuff. they're not living in the same realm as the rest of us exactly now the the, the issue however is um yes certainly those those fields seem to reward that kind of personality. And I'm not sure that we can do much about high finance, but we can can certainly do something about politics because at least in more or less democratic societies, such as the United States and, and most European countries, ultimately the buck stops with us. That is, we are responsible for who we put there, right? And so it's easy to complain about the politicians because, you know, oh, that's, that's a bad person, you know, he's a sociopath. I can't believe that this person is in charge. Well, okay, but stop for a minute and think about who put him there. In a democratic society, we did. We are the ones that are ultimately responsible. Of course, not individually because my individual vote doesn't count as much. But collectively, we're certainly responsible for who is in charge. And so I think it's you know, one of the arguments that I make near the end of the book is that we, we need to stop complaining about politicians and do something about it. When you said you know, those professions seem to reward a high level of sociopathy, yes, and we seem to reward, we as, as voters seem to reward a high degree of sociopathy, at least in one of those two professions. I mean, you know, we don't elect uh, financiers, but we certainly do elect politicians. And I think that the reason for that uh, is in part, at least, because as a general public, we have not been paying much attention to character, hence the, the reason for writing the, this kind of book. I think we need to go back to reevaluate our priorities, we tend to be, for, for one thing, 
We are now confusing, a lot of us are confusing politics for partisanship. I have even some of my, uh, my own students who tell me that they don't get involved in politics and they don't want to talk about politics with their friends or, or relatives because people get upset. Right? I understand I them that, a little bit. Absolutely. I understand them as well. But that means that there is a confusion there between politics and partisanship. They're thinking of partisanship. They're thinking about, oh, immediately people split into two factions and they, they, don't, they start yelling at <laughs> To be honest, other. that's how it, it's presented out there in the media. Yes, you know? that's right. It is. And that's because it sells newspapers and it sells you know, television programs and something like that. But it's not very useful to society. We should be focusing on politics. After all, the, the word itself comes from polis, right, which means society, city, uh, city. And so to do politics means to be interested in, to be involved in how you run your own society. Why would anybody not be interested in, in how you run your own society? So one thing that we need to do is to step back for a minute and again, make a distinction between partisanship and politics. And we should try to stay away as much as possible from partisanship. We should talk about ideas, not about people. We should talk about what works and what doesn't work, ideally in an evidence-based manner, just like we do in, in other areas of, of life. Let's say, for instance, that you, know, you, you have to buy a car. Of course, a car salesman will try to sell you whatever they have available. But if you are a smart person, what you're going to do is you're going to look at reviews at technical specifications. You're going to look at, at a number of things before you buy a car. Why is that? Well, because you're spending a significant amount of money and, and you want something that is going to last for at least a, a number of years. Now, if we pay, the irony here is that we pay more attention to things like buying a car, which after all, it's pretty trivial, than who we elect to office, which literally affects everybody in our entire life. So it's, 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 it's a weird way of having priorities. And the Greco-Romans would tell you that means you just got the wrong priorities. If you think that it, it's better to spend time researching a car or a vacation or a house or something like that, then researching who you're putting in charge of society, then you're really screwed up. That's, I, I believe that's a really tall order. Like we mentioned media, but then we have social media. And I see with myself already that nothing excites me more than writing an angry comment you know, mm -hmm. under a political debate on Facebook or Instagram or, or somewhere. I love to be upset, even though I know this is the stupidest thing that exists. Um, yes. and, and probably this is what drives <laughs> the attention economy or a large part of it, right? So yes. how can we go beyond that? Like, I oh, know that this is complete, excuse my language, bullshit, but... Absolutely. I can't help myself to not write that really sassy, angry comment. Under there. That's right. That's right. And the solution is simple. Quit. Just <laughs> okay. cold turkey. Just shut right. it everything shut everything down. Oof. That's what I did um, you know, a few months ago, precisely because I got to your same conclusion, which by the way is backed up by pretty solid science. I mean of course. the reason these things happen, the reason you feel that way is because the system is actually the technology is designed for that, because that is what maximizes these companies' profit. So for several years, I was very active on both Facebook and, and Twitter. 
And when people were pointing out to me that maybe this wasn't the best place to be, in order, if, if you're interested in learning things and, and uh, participating, you know, fostering public debate, maybe that's not the, pla- the, the place to be. Whenever people were saying, telling me that, I was answering, well, but these are just technologies. Technologies are neutral. It depends on how you use it, right? Yeah, sure. You can be angry all the time and, and put stuff that makes you know, no sense, or you can just use it reasonably and be you know, uh, constructive and all that sort of stuff. I, I thought for a long time, this is up to you. It's the technology itself is actually neutral. Nah, not really. It turns out that a lot of technology are not, are not neutral at all. In fact, there is a book that came out just a few months ago, the title of which it literally is, Technology is Not Neutral. Oh, I and mean, you can use a gun to scratch your back, but that's not why it was designed. Exactly. To do, right? It's not exactly right. That's exactly right. So, yes, it's true that to some extent it is up to the user, right? You can, there, is, there could be technologies that are meant for uh, things, you know, to build things, let's say like a hammer, for instance, meant to actually do, be used as a tool to build things. But, you know, you can crush somebody's skull with it and if, if you really want to. So there are t- positive technologies that can be used for, for uh, negative uses. But there are some technologies that are inherently negative and it becomes very difficult to use them for, uh, for, for good. And your example of a gun is perfectly it's perfectly in line with that. Yes, you can, if you want to, you can use it to scratch your head, but you know, that's not what it's designed for. It's designed to kill people. So I think the same is for social media. I mean, there is a colleague of mine at NYU uh, who is a sociologist, Jonathan Haidt. And, uh, uh, you know, Jonathan and I often don't see eye to eye. We have disagreements about, you know, the relationship between ethics and sociology and, and psychology. But I think, he, but he wrote an, an article recently in The Atlantic that is a prelude to a book that I think he's working on, where he basically claims that one of the major disasters of the 21st century is the, the rise of social media, that he, he documents a lot of negative effects of social media. And in this particular case, I think Jonathan is right. There's, there's no question in my mind anymore. So then I asked myself the question, okay, so what can I do about it? And my first response was, okay, I'm going to just trying to be more careful in the use of this tool. Because after all, there are a few things positive about social media. You know, I could keep in touch with my family and friends, for instance, from around the world more easily on Facebook. I could uh, follow people on Twitter that I think are, you know, post interesting stuff and learn f- things that I, not might, I might not have learned otherwise. So it is possible to use those, me- those media in the way in which you scratch your head with a, with a gun. But it's very, very difficult, and there are better ways to do it. So what I decided was that after a few months of trying to use those media more carefully and more, you know, in a more temperate fashion, etc., it's like, no, this is just not going any, any, anywhere. So I just quit cold turkey. And some of my friends were upset because, like, wait a minute, I, now I don't have any way to follow, you know, what you're doing and what, etc. And I thought, look, there are alternatives. So... Uh, yeah, my friends and relatives cannot follow me on, on Facebook. But guess what? We can still talk on the phone. We can still chat. We can still email. It's not like I'm out of technology entirely. I'm just out of social media, of a particular type, you know, conception of social media. The same goes for uh, people who are interested in my work, and, you know, readers and, and, and stuff like that. Yeah, you could follow me on Facebook or Twitter. But you can also go straight to my blog and we can have interactions there. The difference there is that if you come to my blog, you are interested 
the whole thing is moderated it's a closed environment it's much much easier to have high quality conversations uh, in, in even public high quality conversations than it is on social media where you have you know a number of strangers you have no idea who they are and and they are free to say whatever the hell they want I read your blog post on how you quit social media and what really got me it was like a punch to the stomach is at the end I think you say well we're here for a finite amount of years you know and at the end when it's all said and done are you really gonna be thinking about I should have spent more time on social media probably not Right. Yeah. So, but on the other hand, for example, this podcast, I can't reach an audience unless I do some social media, you know. And like you said, it's so damn hard to well, just go cold turkey. I, I hear you. I mean, you know, one one of the things that happened, for instance, is that I quit social media just a few months before uh, the Quest for Character came out, and my agent and my editor were not exactly happy about about that right because they said wait a minute but you know now how are you going to you know um, advertise your book and, and make sure that people know that it's out but again i'm a scientist so i looked into the quantitative evidence i said okay well so the assumption is that if you have let's say in my case i had like 50,000 followers on on twitter the assumption is that if you have thousands or tens of thousands of followers or even millions, uh, then you're going to sell a lot of books because people are going to be... Turns out that's not true. The, uh, what is called the conversion rate, that is the number of people, the fraction that, uh, uh, of your followers who actually got, goes out there and buys the book or, or, or you know, subscribes to your podcast or whatever it is, it's actually tiny. It's a really tiny fraction. Uh, which hardly makes it worth it. I mean, out of 50,000 people, only a few dozens buy uh, a book if I put out uh, repeated posts about it. That's just not worth the, the, the effort. And there are other ways to do it. Like, for instance, I, you know, I, do a pod- I produce a podcast as well called um, Philosophy as a Way of Life with a colleague of mine called, uh, his name is Rob Coulter. He's a University of Wyoming. And what we do is we put out the, the podcast on a, pla- on a platform, uh, Anchor in our case, and then that platform actually distributes it to a number of other places like you know Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, etc. And I advertise the, pat- the podcast to my mailing list. I have an actual a mailing list of actual names and e- of people, an email that is now several thousand uh, people. Turns out that, uh, and, and also I post it on my blog. Now, it turns out that those return rates are much higher because if somebody gives you their email address to put on the list, that means they really are interested. They're not just somebody who clicked like once, you know, five years ago, and now he's a follower, but he actually doesn't see anything of the stuff that I'm publishing. So I think that even that idea that you just uh, brought up, which is a very common uh, point that um, uh, podcasters and bloggers and authors often bring up about the usefulness of social media. It turns out even that one is actually highly debatable. The return rate on social media is very low, and there are alternatives. I understand, you know, if you, if you say, well, I just put my podcast in the void and nobody's going to listen, then why am I, going, uh, am I going to do, you know, make the effort? But you don't have to post in the void. There are other ways to build an audience. There, is, there are more... Uh, constructive ways of interacting with your audience. So I honestly have not regretted that decision. Oh, 
<laughs> I love how you call it the void. <laughs> and also, I think the underlying theme of this episode should be a new hope, like the Star Wars, <laughs> the Star <laughs> right. Wars movie. You know, there's hope to get better. Uh, I mean, to to become a better person, there's hope to quit social media. I like it. I like that. Um, if we go back uh, to your book a little bit, um, in the chapter "The Philosopher Kings," you examine the life of the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius, uh, yep. who you mentioned already who was a Stoic and who wrote the famous Meditations. You write that he kind of came closest to our model of philosopher and statesman. Could you elaborate on his example a little bit and why it's still re relevant today? Yeah, so Marcus was, first of all, a person who very consciously adopted philosophy as a way of life since he was a kid. Apparently, he started studying Stoicism and other philosophies when he was like 13 or something, 12 or 13. And he consciously tried throughout his life to become a better person. Now, did he succeed? Yeah, to, to an extent. I mean, he was not a sage. He was not a you know, perfect human being of, or, or anything like that. But in his case, we have a lot of evidence of how it turned out. Some of that evidence is internal, meaning it comes from him. From him. If you read the Meditations, uh, which is his book, it, the Meditations was his philosophical journal. So it was not meant for publication originally. It was just his own thoughts about how to engage in self-improvement. And so you can learn a lot about the mind of Marcus Aurelius by just reading the meditations and pay attention to what was important for him, how he reacted to setbacks and to issues that he was encountering. But we also have, you know, his reign is also very well documented. We have a lot of archaeological evidence. We have a lot of historical evidence. And all of that evidence points to the fact that, again, despite not being perfect, he certainly was much better than a lot of the other uh, statesmen and you know emperors and kings uh, of of that period. He really did try to do a lot of good. So, for instance, he used to be he often was accused of sort of persecuting Christians. But it turns out that was a Christian myth <laughs> that was made up by a um, by a bishop uh, that lived a little after a few years after Marcus Eusebius, right? Yeah, Eusebius. The story, the history is actually the historical evidence is pretty clear that in fact Marcus did exactly the opposite. Once that he was made aware of the fact that some of his governors were uh, engaging in persecution of the of the Christians in in the, in the uh, outside of Rome, so in some of the provinces, he actually sent a letter to the governor and said, under no circumstances you will prosecute a Christian for being a Christian. You can only prosecute a Christian if he has committed a crime, uh, which, of course, is what you do normally uh, with, you know, with, with your citizens. So he actually did the opposite. He was very tolerant of his wife, for instance, who was a repeated you know, uh, offender. She, she was, she was sleeping around with other people all the time, but he was very tolerant. You know, he could, he was, remember, he was the emperor. He could have literally had these people eliminated. It's not like, you know, this, this, he had essentially absolute power or close to absolute power. So he, if he had gone, let himself to be really seriously pissed off, he could have made a carnage. Which Roman emperors did all the time, to be honest. That's right, right which a lot of Roman emperors did. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is, at some point, he faced an internal rebellion by one of his uh, governors, one of his, his lieutenants. And what he did was, again, to try to negotiate first, not to just straight go out and, and start a bloodbath, 
And then when the negotiations failed, then he moved with his army. Uh, fortunately, the guy was actually killed by his own, uh, one of his own centurions, and so the, the rebellion ended. But it was customary at the time that if something like that happened, the emperor would ask the Senate to put to death all of the immediate relatives of the uh, rebel. So in order to avoid future unrest, essentially, right, including children, there was just no, there's no, uh, no half measure. Marcus didn't do that. He pardoned uh, people that were associated with the rebellion. He did not go after the relatives of of the rebel himself. So you know, he showed himself to be a merciful, reasonable uh, leader. And uh, you know, he had a Cassius Dio, who was uh, a historian who lived shortly after Marcus and that access, direct access to a lot of material about Marcus Aurelius' life, uh, tells us that you know, he's remembered as a great emperor, and he could have been even better, remembered even better, if, in fact, he had not been that unlucky. He, he faced, as I said, an internal rebellion, a major pestilence uh, that killed two or three million people, the major plague of, the anti- of antiquity, the Antonine Plague, hit the reign of Marcus Aurelius, two frontier wars, one in the east against the Parthians, one in the north against the Marcomanni, the German tribes. So, you know, he had his hands full. One major flooding of the Tiber that destroyed half of Rome, a major earthquake that destroyed Izmir in modern uh, western Turkey. So he had his hands full. And nevertheless, he rose to the occasion and he did his best to address these issues. That's what you want in a statesman. You don't want, you, you can't expect miracles because they're human beings. And you cannot expect perfection either for the same reason, because they're human beings. But you can expect that they're going to try to do their best when they face crisis, where their best is not about self-aggrandizing, is not about lining their pockets, it's about helping people. Just to push back just a tiny bit here. Um, sure. You write that even though Marcus Aurelius knew, for example, and wrote about the inherent evil of slavery, he didn't get rid of it, because he quite couldn't in the, within the confines of that time. Does the stoic way of life that he personified um, kind of hit a ceiling when a more revolutionary type of action is necessary? Like, for example, we know full well right now that if we don't do something really radical about our way of life, climate change will result in the collapse of our civilization. Yeah, I think that's a fair question. And I think the answer is yes. Uh, that shows the limitations of Stoicism as a, as a philosophy. I, I agree. I mean, Stoicism is a great philosophy of life uh, at a personal level. Uh, it has helped me immensely. It has helped a lot of, of people uh, that have read either my books or other books about modern Stoicism. So it's got a lot of good stuff going on for it. And to some extent, one might sort of respond to that question in by pointing out that you know, nobody criticizes other philosophies of life for failing to address structural problems. It's not like you go to Christians or Buddhists, for instance, and say, hey, what about st- structural issues in society? They will shrug off and say, well, th- this is not what this is about. It's about personal growth and, and personal improvement, not, not about society. But I agree with you. That's not a good excuse. I think, in fact, that that Stoicism, Buddhism, and Christianity, all three of them fail at that level because they do not take into account the structural level. There are philosophies that do. And the best example in ancient uh, Greece and Rome is the type of skepticism that was put forth by Cicero. 
Marcus Tullius Cicero was a Roman statesman, uh, philosopher, and public advocate, so essentially a lawyer. And he was a practical person. And he realized uh, very clearly, very consciously, that philosophy has to address the structural level. So he wrote a book called, uh, it has one of my favorite titles ever. In Latin is Definibus Bonorum et Malorum, which translates to the On the Ends of Good and Evil. I, I just love that. For some reason, I just love that title. It's a great, it's a great title. Now, in On the Ends of Good and Evil, he talks about uh, the general issue of what is good and what is not good. Because in his ideas being, if you don't have that in mind, if you don't have that kind of moral compass, uh, that you can distinguish good stuff from bad stuff, then we're not even going to start this conversation. Then he wrote On Duty, uh, which is about personal philosophy. It's about, okay, how do you work within a society, within whatever society you happen to be? Even if it is a tyranny, you still have a duty to be a good human being. And so On Duties uh, uh, addresses the issue of that Stoicism addresses, the issue that Christianity is and Buddhism address. That is, how do you live as an individual human being? But he also wrote two other books, De Legibus, on, on the laws, and De Republica, on the Republic, where he actually talks about what kind of laws and state we want. In other words, he went structural. He said, okay, but it's great to be you know, able to be a stoic, let's say, within a society, but sometimes we also need to ask ourselves what kind of society we want and whether we need to make changes at what we would today call a structural level. He didn't use that word, of course, but at, at a structural level. So I think actually that among the ancients, the Cicero really stands up. He's, he's often undervalued because he's often presented as somebody who just translated Greek philosophy, right? That he was not an original philosopher of his own, that he just, he just uh, popularized Greek philosophy for the Romans, uh, that's not true. I mean, he, the guy wrote some really interesting original philosophy, and especially political philosophy, which was a novel thing at the time. You know, no, nobody was was uh, paying attention to the structural level. So, it is possible for a philosophy to address both the personal and the structural level, and I would argue that it should be. Um, you know, addressed. And so, yes, that is a limitation of Stoicism. But to be fair, it's not just Stoicism. It's a lot of personal philosophies and religions that fall into the same kind of trap. But if you are, for example, trying to adopt a more Stoic way of life, how do you know when you've been improving or concentrating on yourself too much kind of to the neglect of your responsibilities to society, for example? Is there a way to combine the two? Yeah, I think I think that's a good question. I think there is there is a way. Uh, you know, um, unfortunately, too often today, Stoicism is presented as a philosophy philosophy of self improvement, as if other people were not you know did not exist. Uh, it's often presented as a, a set of of life hacks more than a philosophy. Right? Yeah, a lot so of these you, like CEOs and yeah, you know right. new age gurus will talk about like the YouTube is full of videos of people who uh, espouse this sort of hustle culture, you know. Right. And they are they're talking about and stoicism kind of helped me elevate my entrepreneurship and all that stuff. Exactly. In other and words, and it's a bit. I think you call it. I, I saw an interview with you. Uh, where you call it stoicism with the dollar sign, right? That's right, exactly. So in other words, what you're saying is that YouTube is full of crap. Yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast will appear on YouTube as well, so... <laughs> 
Well, I didn't say that it's all crap. All right, nice. <laughs> but Thank there you is, for the uh, distinction. But there is a lot of it. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I agree, absolutely agree. Look, I get uh, invited, because I wrote How to Be a Stoic, I get invited from time to time to give talks to corporate groups or to you know, some kind of business groups. And I warned them that I said, Yo, yeah, I can, I can do that, but I'm going to talk about the philosophy. I'm not going to talk about the life hackery kind of, kind of thing. And so I do give a talk, and then I, I tell them usually near the end of the talk, it's like, look, if you really understand Stoicism, then you will understand that building your business in order to make money is a preferred indifferent, meaning it is something that actually has no, n- not much value for your life. You need to do it because, you know, you need to pay your bills, and that's fine. It has, it has practical value, but it's not really what's important in your life. And if you think that that is, in fact, one of the most important things you need to do to build your business, to be successful, to make money, etc., then you completely misunderstood Stoic philosophy. Stoicism is about becoming a better human being, and it's about helping other people becoming better human beings. Uh, one of the fundamental ideas of Stoicism is cosmopolitanism, is the notion that we should treat every single human being on the planet as if they were our brothers and sisters. That's incompatible, I would say, with a strong form of capitalism and a strong form of consumerism. It's just you cannot do it. If you are going to make... There is no way, for instance, in my mind at least, that you can become a billionaire without hurting other people. It's just, it's just not going to happen. You have to exploit other people in order to make that much money. Yep. And therefore, if, you, if I look at you and, you're, and you are in, you know, a Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos or somebody like that, I'm going to tell you straight out, I'm sorry, you're not a stoic. You might think you're, in, you're, you're practicing stoicism, but no, there's no way in hell that that is stoicism. The stoics don't have a problem with wealth. They don't have a problem with money. Epictetus, at the beginning of the discourses, tells you money is fine because, again, you can do things with money. But the question is, what are you going to do with money? And the money itself doesn't tell you. What tells you is your faculty of judgment. And you can use money for good, to help other people, to make the world a better place, or you can use it for bad, for, you know, to undermine the political process, to buy politicians and stuff like that, to corrupt people. So it's entirely up to you. Money in itself is neutral from a moral perspective. It's what you do with that money that matters, and that is a matter of your judgment. It's a matter of your, 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 your virtue. And um, unfortunately, a lot of these people don't want to hear that. They don't, they don't really like the, the notion of being told about virtue. They want to know how to make more money or how to become successful, in which case they completely misunderstood what it means to be a stoic. So do you get invited to less and less of these um, mm-hmm. talks? Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I haven't, okay. I haven't had one of those inv- invitations in a while. That's okay. That's fine. <laughs> the word <laughs> has spread. <laughs> yes, the word has spread. We talked about it a little bit already when we talked about social media, but it seems that the world is moving in the quite the opposite direction of stoic ideals. We're all plugged into our echo chambers all the time. Instant gratification is definitely a thing. This celebrity culture has gone completely off the rails. Even a longer conversation such as this one we're having right now is almost an oddity in the public sphere. Uh, if you don't want to live in the desert, is it even possible to pursue Stoic ideals in today's society? I think it is possible, and I think, in fact, that that is one of the major 
values, the major reasons why people should be pursuing stoicism, exactly because it, it presents a counterpoint to so much that is wrong with our society today. If you start practicing stoicism, even at a beginning level, certainly without you know be becoming a, a sage, you will find yourself less into social media, you will find yourself less into gossiping, you will find yourself le paying less attention to consumerism and stuff like that. And your life, and, and I would argue the life of the planet, would be, would be better. When the Stoics say that you should be paying attention to the cosmopolis and never do anything that undermines the cosmopolis, the, 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 the large family of humanity, people might think, well, who am I to, you know, I can't undermine the, the cosmopolis. I'm not the president of the United States. I'm not, I'm not in charge of anything. So how can I possibly undermine the cosmopolis? But I think that you undermine the cosmopolis by doing all sorts of minor things. When you mistreat other people, you undermine the cosmopolis. When you get angry to, with other people, online or offline, you're undermining the cosmopolis. When you're making bad decisions from an environmental perspective, at a personal level, you are undermining the cosmopolis. And you know, it's easy enough to for us to it's easy for us to to keep complaining about oh the politicians are not doing anything about climate change. True. And what are you doing exactly? You know, but start start with yourself. <laughs> Uh, are you recycling? Are you moving toward a vegetarian diet? Are you reducing your footprint, you know, uh, carbon footprint? Are you doing those things? Because if you're not, then you really ha don't have much right to complain about what the politicians are doing because they're not doing anything different from what you're doing. So, yeah, I think that stoicism is a necessary and, and very welcome counter to the kind of societal issues and societal attitudes that, um, that are creating so much trouble. Now, if you're asking me, well, is stoicism by itself going to be able to change the world? Eh, I'm not that optimistic. <laughs> but it will make change the world in, at least at a local level, at least at the level of individuals. And the Stoics really did believe that change comes from below. It's from, from the bottom up. Not, you cannot impose societal changes from, from the top. That may or may not be right. I do think that we need some structural changes, as we were talking about a few minutes ago, but certainly it's not a bad idea to start from the from the bottom and say, "Look, I am trying to do my best, and by and I lead by example." Uh, one of the things that Epictetus says in the discourses is, "Don't talk to other people about stoicism. Don't talk to other people about how to be good. Just be good, and then they'll follow. Then then they'll realize that they can. Wow, okay, this this guy is acting in this way. Why why is that? And and then then you are teaching by example, not just by talking to people. If I can ask you something a little bit more personal, you mentioned it during the conversation that stoicism personally helped you. Could you say a little bit more about that? Well, I started getting interested in practical philosophy initially, more generally, and then stoicism in particular a number of years ago, simply because I was going through a midlife crisis, like many people do, right? So it was a difficult time in my life. There was, you know, my father died. Um, I was hit by a divorce that I was not expecting, you know, that sort of stuff. Nothing particularly unusual. It's not like, you know, no, no major catastrophes. But nevertheless, the kind of things that makes you stop for a minute and say, whoa, how am I going to deal with this? And I discovered that I had no resources to deal, to deal with it because I considered myself, you know, I, w I grew up Catholic in Rome and I left the church when I was a teenager. 
And then after leaving uh, Catholicism, I consider myself a secular humanist, which is a general label for saying, you know, somebody who doesn't really believe in God. Yeah, we're all and, saying that about ourselves. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, ah, I'm a secular humanist. Because it's very okay, non-committal, whatever. you know. It exactly. can be a lot of things. Yeah. Exactly. It's pretty non-committal. It doesn't, you know, it's, you're still something, but it's not clear really what it is. <laughs> exactly. And when I started having, you know, running into setbacks uh, of, the, some, of the, the kind that I mentioned, I discovered that secular humanism was not giving me any resources on how to deal with the situation. I certainly wasn't going to go back to religion. Uh, that, would not, that, was, that path was precluded uh, by my understanding of how the world works. And then I started looking around. And when I started looking around, I very quickly realized that a good answer would come from the general area of virtue ethics. Most of the Greco-Roman philosophies are fall into the category of virtue ethics, meaning that it's a way of living your life that is based on the notion of virtue. And then I started exploring some of the obvious ones. I looked at Aristotle, and, uh, and then I looked at Epicurus. And both of them had interesting things to say, but it didn't really click. I, I, I could not see myself going around saying, oh, yeah, I'm an Aristotelian or even I'm an Epicurean. Uh, and then I, discover, I rediscovered Stoicism because it turns out that I actually had read Seneca when I was in high school and I read Marcus Aurelius when I was in college, but I never actually connected the two somehow. I never thought, oh, wait, they're, they're talking about the same stuff here. Uh, so I rediscovered Stoicism, and uh, and that that clicked. In particular, I the first Stoic that I reread was Epictetus. Actually, that I read for the first time because I I had no idea who Epictetus was, and I, and, I, and I immediately thought, why did I not know who this guy was? This this is this is a major philosopher that ought to be well known by by everybody, and uh, that clicked. So Epictetus really spoke to me and clarified. A number of things, and arguably, um, and maybe we can sort of close on on this one. The the most important thing that Epictetus taught me was what he himself referred to as the fundamental rule of life. And the fundamental rule of life is the notion that some things are up to me and other things are not up to me. And a good life is made out of paying attention to the things that are up to me because that's where my agency lies. That's where I can actually do things. And then developing an attitude of acceptance and equanimity for the kinds of things that are not up to me. And so this this basic rule, which is very simple to understand, has essentially infinite applications. From you know, it has helped me from dealing with um, my flight being canceled at the airport, so you know, minor things like that, to major things like uh, the pandemic. During the pandemic, I ended up in the emergency room a couple of times, and that was not a pleasant uh, experience. But Epictetus' rule immediately taught me. You know, it came to mind immediately. I said, "Okay, well, what can I do actually here?" I can go to the emergency room, I can listen to what the doctors are saying, and I can bring a book uh, with me so that I don't get bored. The rest is not going to be up to me. It's going to be up to the doctors, it's going to be up to luck uh, to some extent, it's going to be up to whatever medicines they're going to give me. And that immediately calmed down the whole, the whole approach to things. Like, okay, so let me, let me focus on what I actually can do, and, uh, and the rest, it will be what, whatever it will be. Um, that thing, that single concept that Epictetus told me, which, by the way, you find actually in other cultures, it, it pops up in uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Buddhism even, 
is uh, is really it really is a fundamental role role in life rule in life. If you train yourself, whatever you're facing, to ask as the first question, you ask yourself what here is up to me and what is not, and then you act accordingly. You're half the way there. Professor Pellucci, that was such a beautiful conclusion, and I hate to spoil it, but I'll have to with the very last question. Uh, the title of this podcast is Euro Trash, which means I have to ask you something a little bit more trashy at the end. Let me <laughs> open up the book again really, really quickly. I have it marked over here. Yes, here we go. Okay, I will just read a tiny little bit. Plato famously recognized four cardinal virtues later inherited by the Stoics. Practical wisdom, courage, justice, and temperament, which is self-control. If one lacks these virtues, the one is affected by the corresponding vices, which are unwisdom, cowardice, injustice, and intemperament. So the lack of self-control. Which is your favorite of these, of the vices, and why? Of the vices, yeah, <laughs> intemperance for sure. Uh, you know, lack of self-control is my favorite in the sense that it's one that I suffer from and I need to work on. <laughs> All right, cool. I think <laughs> I think I can completely agree with that one as well. Thank you so much. This was such a cool conversation. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. Where can people uh, buy your book, The Quest for Character, which has a different title in Europe? It does. Uh, it, at least in the UK, it has, it's called How to Be Good. And, uh, and it even has a different cover for some reason. Uh, the book can be found anywhere books are sold, both online and offline. And for everything else that um, I do, people can go to massimopiliucci.org. Thank you. It was great ha being here. Thanks for it having me. It was an me. absolute pleasure. Thanks.